Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Over the last 20 years, big tech remade just about every realm of human life. People find dates, food, and even terrible medical advice on apps. Supply chain problems notwithstanding, just about every item on earth can be delivered to your door after a few clicks. And businesses, large and small, can reach people far outside their metro area, let alone zip code. Politics, of course, is filtered and amplified through the strange mechanisms of Facebook and Twitter. With so much change, can democracy even keep up? That's the big question that three Stanford professors tackle in their new book, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. They're coming up next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. You know, the last 18 months have shown the tough situation we find ourselves in with our technology companies. The pandemic demonstrated how indispensable they've become for the basic functioning of societies across the world. They're the market makers, the tool builders, job creators. And at the same time, the Internet companies absolutely wrecked the pre-existing ways that people came to understand the world and replaced it with an extremely polluted and conspiratorial information ecosystem. This is an environment where anti-vax propaganda and the big lie about the election can flourish. And if that's not exclusively the fault of big tech, they certainly have to shoulder some of the blame, as even most people in and around tech admit. So here we are, completely dependent on our devices and tech services, yet conflicted about their ethical dimensions. Can't live without them and not sure how to live with them. Enter Rob Reich, Mehran, Sahami and Jeremy Weinstein, three Stanford professors by training a philosopher, a computer scientist, and a political scientist, respectively. They've come to offer us a better technology world with their new book, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. So yesterday, another tech whistleblower testified before Congress, Frances Haugen, about her time at Facebook, Inc. And I wanted to get your reactions, perhaps starting with you, Jeremy, as you've spent time in Washington. You know, her testimony really seems to boil down to Facebook is both doing harm and Facebook knows it is doing harm. Do you think that this evidence uh, changes and the, the hearing around it changes the politics around tech policy? I think we have to look at the events yesterday in Washington as a hinge moment in the relationship between big tech and the set of elected politicians that have responsibility for regulating big tech. A couple things came out very clearly yesterday. The first is that the societal harms that are caused by big tech are now inescapable. And what was clear in Francis Haugen's testimony yesterday is that those societal harms, whether it's the effects of Instagram on the mental health of young girls or the toxic misinformation that we know is promoted on the platforms. 
These are things that were well understood within Facebook, that Facebook's much vaunted research team had demonstrated, and that they had pushed up to the leadership team with a question of, should we pivot in different directions in the design of our technology to address these harms? So what was clear is that the harms are visible, that the leadership at Facebook knew about it, but also that the binary choice that's been offered to us as citizens, which is accept Facebook as it is, or disengage from Facebook entirely, mm -hmm. is not really an acceptable choice or the only choice. Hmm. And that ultimately, if we think about a healthy information ecosystem that we want, yes, a platform that connects us to our friends and family, but also a platform that doesn't undermine the health of our democracy, we can have both, but we won't get it if we allow the decisions about the design of these technologies to be left entirely in the hands of companies. You know, Rob, her reforms seemed kind of pretty middle of the road to me. For example, she's not pro-breaking up these companies. Based on your research, what did you think about her proposed changes to how technology should be regulated? Right. Well, I think that she... You know, she lifted the game of the con uh, the conversation in Congress because she brought so much internal documentation to bear on the conversation. So you're right. I mean, she didn't call for the you know blowing up of Facebook. She was very clear in saying that she didn't think antitrust and breaking you know one Facebook up into twenty Facebooks was going to be a, a solution to the problem of misinformation, disinformation, or you know various forms of harm through Instagram. Um, Antitrust is is an important step forward, but not for this particular problem of all of the documentation of social harms. So the kinds of things that Frances Haugen called for were custom tailored to the problems that she was concerned to identify and break out outside of the company and introduce to the entire public. And those had to do with the algorithmic amplification of social harms or the prioritizing of profits over people, as she put it. Um, so the kinds of solutions that she has on, in mind are requiring legislation or having legislation that would require independent access to the data held inside companies. So outside researchers, as well as internal researchers have a chance to assess the problems, to, to audit the algorithmic amplification, to ensure that the, the company's policies of content moderation are actually being enforced internally. And I think at the end of the day, the only significant place where I, or I think speaking on behalf of Maron and Jeremy, that you know, we have a, a, an important point of disagreement is that the conversation yesterday was very much about Facebook. And we think this is a systemic problem. The same algorithmic amplification that we learned about over the course of the past week is present in YouTube. It's present in Twitter. It's present in TikTok. And we could look down the line of the incentive structures of these big social media platforms, and there's degrees of difference among them, but not anything significant. What we need is a conversation about the entire ecosystem of big tech, not just a focus on one company. Yeah. Yeah. It's always struck me that, you know, Facebook works completely differently from WhatsApp in terms of its, its actual, you know, the way that it spreads information. And yet... We see so many similar misinformation and disinformation problems on these two wildly different platforms, which has always struck me as interesting. Um, Mehran, you've worked inside the technology world. You are a technologist. Did you think Frances Haugen's testimony sort of reflected 
the kind of internal criticism that people inside the technology industry have been making kind of among themselves without necessarily taking it you know, to Congress? I think she had some similarities to some of the issues that people have raised in the tech sector. That's certainly true. I think one of the things that also comes up is understanding that she was kind of straddling a line, both between having the credibility of an insider because she had this documentation about what was actually going on there and the decisions that were being made, but also the sensibilities of an outsider mm. as to saying these are things where we would actually think the public would want the decisions made differently. I think it was interesting that that Facebook issued a press release where they tried to, in some sense, minimize her testimony by saying she'd only been at the company for less than two years. And first of all, two years is still a pretty long time to understand what's going on inside the company. But secondly, it actually gives some credence to the notion that she wasn't completely bought into the internal messaging of the company or the way that they believe things should be done. The fact that she'd been there less of a time meant that she still was bringing this outer sensibility in terms of what are the kinds of decisions she would have liked to see made from someone outside the company. And I think that's part of the message that we need to understand there is that some of the folks inside the company are so entrenched in some of the ways that things have been done and have so internalized those internal metrics having to do with things like how much people are engaging on the platform, how much they're clicking on content, that it becomes harder for them to still also internalize the external view that we actually need to put people above profits. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your new book, the book that you three co-authored, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. Um, Rob, let's start with you. One fascinating thing about this book is that you really take up the banner for democracy. And just a few years ago, I would have found it kind of shocking to read a book having to make the case for why democracy is good. And yet now it, it seems kind of necessary. Can you tell me about how you decided to to frame the book in this way as a sort of democracy promotion vehicle? Right. Well, you're exactly right. And, and the, you know, the book is at the end of the day, an argument in light of Francis Haugen's testimony, the, the link here is, is powerful, that we've seen the rise over the past 20 or 30 years of, of a small number of companies, mostly based here in Silicon Valley, that have executed just an extraordinary power grab over so many aspects of our lives. Uh, I mean, the, the kinder way to tell that story would be to say something like the, the, the Davids of the programming world, uh, mostly here in Silicon Valley, sort of fighting against the old industrial Goliaths, actually won that battle and now have themselves become the Goliaths over, over the past um, decade. And the, the upshot of that is, When you see Mark Zuckerberg with the particular kind of corporate control that he has atop the company of Facebook, he is the effective governor or dictator, if you will, of the speech environment of nearly 4 billion people. Um, Google has a near monopoly on, on search. And you could keep going down the line about the power that these companies have over over our lives. And so. We, we try to situate this entire story within the broader history of what we call a race between technological innovation or disruption and democracy and, and the, the awakening of ordinary citizens and elected leaders to help make sure we harness the great benefits of innovation, but also contain the harms. And we're at that hinge moment right now where we no longer should want or even permit the decisions about how to balance things like privacy online versus 
national security or safety or the idea of providing connections to people, but also then in putting a thumb on the scale of freedom of expression, allowing for the proliferation of misinformation and disinformation. Right now, all those decisions are being made inside a small number of companies by a small number of people. And the social consequences are so great that it's no longer tolerable to have a small number of people make all these decisions. And that that calls for at the end of the day is nothing more complicated than the actual operation of democratic institutions to awaken to their responsibilities and actually reflect the broader social values that democracy is distinctively designed to referee and help to promote um, in order to counterbalance the extraordinary power of the companies. Do you think that the founders and executives within technology companies themselves believe in democracy as a governing principle, or do they see it as somehow opposed to sort of innovation? Yeah, this is Rob here. Let me just add, add to that, if I can say one quick thing. Um, you know, it's well documented that the founders of Silicon Valley companies have a libertarian mindset, which is to say that they're, they're generally suspicious of, you know, big government or regulation. And then when you couple that libertarian mindset with the optimization mindset of the engineers who work there, it's a kind of you know, worrisome formula in our view. It means that the companies are optimizing for a libertarian outlook, which is to say optimizing for the absolutely minimal role of government. Um, it's a mistake to think that democracy is itself a technological design for optimization. It's a fair process for refereeing persistent disagreement among citizens who are considered equals. And at the end of the day, at the extreme, the worry is that many Silicon Valley you know, people actually don't, don't have any principled commitment to democracy itself. If you can optimize your way to better social outcomes through technology, Democracy just holds us back. And that we're talking, sorry, we have to leave it there for one sec. We're going to tie it. We're talking about the new book, System Error, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot. Stay tuned. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new book, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot, with the three authors who are all Stanford University professors. We're joined by Rob Reich. He's a professor in political science and uh, also in philosophy, I believe. Miran Sahami is a professor in the School of Engineering. And Jeremy Weinstein is a professor of political science and a former senior official in the Obama administration. And we want to have you join the conversation do you work in tech? We particularly want to hear from you today. If you do, how do you apply your personal sense of ethics or ethical thought to your work? Do you align it with your company? How do you just bring that part of yourself? Um, and for everybody else, has your view of the technology industry changed over the years? How, how has your view of the technology industry changed over the years? Give us a call now. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch uh, on Twitter and Facebook. Of course, we're at KQED Forum. You can email your questions, your comments, and uh, your sense of things to forum at kqed.com. 
org. Uh, before the break, Rob was telling us about the sort of relationship between the technology companies and democracy. And I want to get to some of these, uh, like some concrete ideas that you uh, have in the book about how this could work. Uh, Jeremy, maybe we'll uh, go to you on this. How do you create a kind of flexible and fast-moving and uh, regulatory infrastructure that actually can understand how these technologies work and how democratic principles might be applied to them? This is one of the critical things that we all need to grapple with in the aftermath of yesterday's testimony. The good news out of yesterday's testimony is that we saw leadership in Congress that over time has accumulated technical know-how and a deep understanding of what's happening in the technology platforms, such that over the course of two or three years, we've gone from the kind of caricatured interaction of the relationship between a senator and Mark Zuckerberg, where Senator Hatch demonstrated no understanding of how Facebook, you know, finances itself, you know, through the selling of ads and, and the targeting of personalized advertising, to the kinds of detailed discussions that were had yesterday about the role of algorithms in amplifying speech and the kinds of metrics that are driving and generating the kinds of societal effects that we've been speaking about on the show. So that's the good news. But here's the challenge. Right now, we have a government that's primarily focused on solving the problems of the last decade. But we need to be thinking about the problems of the next decade as well. And in order to solve the problems of the next decade for the new technologies that are just over the horizon, we need to position our public institutions to be far more flexible and adaptable. And what are the ingredients that would make that possible? Well, one is technical know-how inside government. Mm -hmm. Our federal civil service is aging, right? We have, you know, we have weakened or gotten rid of the major external or internal advisory bodies that bring scientific knowledge to the table. And so we need a reboot of our political structure to ensure that elected officials or appointed officials in the executive branch are not wholly dependent on the lobbyists that are paid by tech companies for a deep and nuanced understanding of technology's effects and what the alternative pathways might be. That is, how can you design a social media platform that produces a healthier information mm -hmm. ecosystem? Or how can you design an application that better balances privacy and safety? Mehran, um, what type of technical know-how would you like to see inside the federal government? Having people who have experience with big tech would be particularly useful. There's things that we can look at where right now you see in Washington people talking about notions of antitrust. And I do agree with Francis Haugen that antitrust by itself is not going to solve the problem. If you just broke up Facebook into five companies, you'd probably find that one of those companies would reemerge as the new big Facebook and the other four would go away unless you actually had some technical solutions to create real competition. And one of those things, for example, would be having interoperability required between platforms. We spend a bunch of time creating our friend connections in Facebook and posting information there. If a new social network or some smaller Facebook really wanted to have a chance to compete in that space, they need to be able to plug into that network so you could still maintain your friends and your information, even if you were somewhere else. So it's really a matter of understanding that interplay between technology and regulation that gets us to solutions that really work for people. One without the other is less likely to be effective. You know, one of the things that you all propose is a sort of renewed office of technology assessment, which was a, a, a body that advised uh, Congress on new technologies, was able to do independent research. 
How do you see uh, that working, Jeremy? So the story of OTA is an important story for people to understand because, you know, in the 1980s and early 1990s, this was a body that provided scientific expertise to elected members of Congress that offered an independent and unvarnished view about the consequences for the public interest of new technologies. Perhaps one of its most famous uh, you know, demonstrations of this role was in a report that was authored by the Office of Technology Assessment in the 1980s that raised serious questions about President Reagan's missile defense system, what was called Star Wars at the time, really putting the brakes on a push that was happening in Washington to pursue something that the experts felt was entirely infeasible. And so that kind of independent body can do extraordinary work in balancing concerns about the public interest with what is being shared by the technology companies themselves that have their own private interest. But the way that the story played out was that in the Gingrich revolution of 1994, a decision was made to shutter OTA. That is our government itself tied its hands behind its back uh, and got rid of the scientific expertise that is actually central to the oversight role that they play. And so bringing back that office is just one example of democracy stepping up to the plate and assuming its rightful role with the ingredients that are needed to exercise oversight over big tech. So I'm on board with a renewed Office of Technology Assessment. That seems to make a lot of sense to me because it's a you know pure a, a research function that Congress uh, needs right now. But is it a little bit underpowered? Like when I think about the other big industry, say, let's talk about like banking and finance, we have the sort of Federal Reserve, which is sort of tied into that infrastructure in these sort of crucial ways, both as a research body to sort of understand how the economy is working, but also to actually influence and affect the way that the banks uh, are working. Rob Reich, what about something bigger in the executive branch to be able to work with and make sure that that public values are represented in the technology industry. Absolutely. I mean, um, while we think it's necessary to recreate or re-empower uh, the OTA, Office of Technology Assessment, that's an especially you know wonky and insider play that's hardly on its own up to the task. And, and Alexis, you're right. I think we need to do um, an, a bunch of other bold things within the federal government. And you know, here's a, just a quick hit list that we think are important. Uh, we need to stand up an agency, maybe maybe within the Department of Justice, that is responsible for independent audits of algorithms um, across the board, wherever we see hmm. algorithmic decision making being put into play in public or private places, say in the hiring algorithms that scan and uprank and downrank people for interviews, or in the use of credit scoring and the availability of of loans to individuals, or in, in the news feeds that we see and that we've been discussing on, on Facebook and, and Twitter and YouTube. We need an independent algorithmic auditing agency to ensure uh, that we have uh, uh, anti-discrimination and fairness that's actually at work instead of these inscrutable algorithms. That's number so, one. And, and you're imagining there something like was used in, um, to battle like housing discrimination. Exactly. That's right. And, and, and as Jeremy said before, this will require some people with some technical talent going into you know, public agencies 
in order to counterbalance the, the, the talent that's you know, concentrated now within companies and where all the decisions are being made. And let me just add, since you know, at Stanford, we're in certain respects in the belly of the beast, no other university is as responsible for the creation of Silicon Valley as Stanford is. And part of what you know, we think is also important is recapturing the spirit of the early age of, of the you know, development of, of personal computers and the kind of countercultural ideology or, or visions of programmers who often aspired to be what you could call a civic technologist. And at the moment, we kind of lost the spirit of that. And, and you know, the, the dreams and visions of the 19-year-olds we teach at Stanford are almost exclusively about going into a startup company or a big tech company. And the idea of going to work in the government seems like, well, why would you join a slow-moving, huge bureaucracy if you could go join something that moved fast and tried to disrupt. And I think we can recapture some of the earlier spirit of the, of the digital revolution by, by telling a story about going to work in public agencies and deploying these technical skills on behalf of a, of a civic project rather than a profit-making project alone. Let's bring in caller David from Sonoma. Welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much. Um, and I, I have to say, I've been in tech myself for about 35 years and have really seen the evolution of tech from a much more idealistic, um, almost hippie, you know, that Star Trek, you know, for the betterment of mankind technology, um, that's really moved into almost exclusively a profit motive. You know, what we have now, uh, the venture capitalists and the venture capital industry has really hijacked the tech industry to the point where, you know, isn't it better to go to a startup, you know, disrupt things and make a billion dollars. And that's the sole reason why so many people are drawn to Silicon Valley right now. You know, growing up in New York City, I was there in the 80s during, you know, Wall Street time. And, you know, every idiot with an MBA came to New York to make a billion dollars. And now every idiot with an MBA is coming to Silicon Valley to make a billion dollars. And there is no oversight. You know, the government got out of the R&D business. And I think that was, you know, the point that was made about OTA. That was critical. That was a critical mistake, you know, largely incented by the Republican Party um, to get government out of business. And, you know, the necessity for having true research, you know, DARPA writ large that's funded by the government that is instructed to go and break things. Right. And really push um, the boundaries of innovation um, is exactly what we need, along with, you know, government oversight or other agencies to take on that oversight role um, to make sure it doesn't get out of hand. Because with the profit motive, what it is, you know, the best ideas. And the well, most David, let me uh, let me I just want to give um, you've, you've offered a lot of like really good thoughts. I just want to make sure we give the the authors a chance to respond to, to them. Um, Mara, sure. do you want to. Um, take uh, this uh, this kind of query and, and packet of ideas? Yeah, I think it's a great point. In the early days of Silicon Valley, I mean, the way the internet got created was basically through government research. So people say the government shouldn't have any role or just, you know, or taking an ahistorical view. But what happened over time was the government funding got supplanted by venture capital funding. And that venture capital funding wanted to see large outsized returns. And so what that turned into was a set of metrics that companies would often try to engage with, having to do with increasing the customer base, having to do with 
with increasing revenue. And those became the goals. So rather than the goals just being, say, connecting people, which is a nice phrase to have at a high level, internally, the things that are measured are how much time people are spending on a platform, how much they're clicking on ads, how much revenue is being generated. And when you combine that with the optimization mindset that Rob alluded to before, what you get is sort of a turning of technologists toward using their formidable skills to optimize these particular metrics. That means trying to achieve vast scale, and it means trying to always get those numbers up, even when sometimes your own research might show that the products that you're using or developing that actually increase those numbers might be having societal harm. And so that's the place where we need to understand that interplay is what's happening is this focus on optimizing for things like revenue means other values we care about get diminished. And that's how we get to the situation that we're in now. Yeah. You know, thinking about the different historical models that you're proposing for how the technology industry could work, you're kind of drawing on on two different traditions. I mean, one is this sort of countercultural, you know, what was sometimes called the California ideology. But that actually was quite free of government, uh, even inclusion, let alone interference. I mean, the idea was deeply libertarian. But there's another tradition, too, which is a sort of 1950s, well into the 1960s model in Silicon Valley, which was largely linked to our war machine um, and and Cold War imperatives. And to to go back to you, Rob, it kind of sounds like you're drawing more as much on that model linking, even though those might be different set of values uh, in, in the Cold War, you are trying to relink the technology industry to the values of the democratically elected government. Yeah, we think you're right. And, and we think that that's both necessary and in a certain respect inevitable. I mean, the, the short you know, way I would describe this is that we have, we're just now emerging from a 30-year period, you know, apropos the, the last caller, in which we started off with this extraordinary techno-optimism or techno-utopianism. And it had that libertarian inflection, just as you said, Alexis, you know, culminating in John Perry Barlow's famous declaration of the independence of cyberspace in which you know, the digital realm was beyond all material realm and governments didn't matter anymore. And, and this kind of techno-utopian libertarian outlook, the Californian ideology. But you're right to say there was an earlier R&D era in which the, the military was the, um, the chief funder of technological innovation rather than Sandhill Road and venture capital. And what we're calling for is now that these technological disruptions have actually achieved enormous scale and we've got concentrated power of these, of these small number of companies, the broader social consequences are just too large and, and impossible to ignore anymore so that we need counterbalanced power outside the companies. We don't want one person inside one company, Facebook, making decisions alone about the speech environment to 4 billion people. We don't want a bunch of people deciding that end-to-end encrypted messaging services with a thumb on the scale of privacy above all other values is the thing that we should have for society. Those are debates we should have more broadly. And now it's time that you know, our democratic institutions are emerging. And let me just add one last thing here, because there's a, a geopolitical consideration. I'm, I'm sure some of the listeners now are wondering about the usual thing offered up at this point in the conversation by people in Silicon Valley, which is, well, if we regulate, then what about China? And we're going to lose the AI arms race or something like that. And we just think that's another false binary choice. 
that what regulation is, is just a word for the longstanding efforts of democratic institutions to try to put in place a bunch of sensible guardrails and avoiding the worst case scenario outcomes, and then allow people and citizens to referee their longstanding disagreements. And what we can get is instead of an idea that America innovates and Europe regulates, we can get cooperation on the geopolitical scene between democratic countries in order to show the path forward for a democratically sustainable tech sector rather than one that is eating it from within. Yeah. I want to get to a couple of comments uh, from listeners. Uh, Patricia writes, if algorithms are the problem, how about treating them like drugs and have them tested and approved before release like medications are? Have an FDA-type government institution that continually tests algorithms and if they are or become harmful, require that they be taken off the market and repaired or permanently removed if they cannot be repaired and create tort liability for negligence, deceit, recklessness within this framework. And this seems to be um, something that the the authors would, in fact, uh, agree with there. Um, Hussam writes, uh, what about the general public? Can't we just abandon Facebook? Also, the media, such as NPR, and uh, this would definitely be a critique of KQD as well, should not direct their listeners to Facebook for more information. Personally, I have not registered on Facebook, and I refuse to do so. I miss out on so many events and talks because I'm not a Facebook member. Sorry about that, Sam. We want to hear from you. If you work in tech, how do you apply your personal ethics to your work? Has your view of the technology industry sort of changed over the years? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can email us your questions. We'll leave out the Facebook and Twitter call out in your honor, Hassam. You can email us at forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Coming up at 10 a.m. with Mina Kim at a recent L.A. Dodgers game, protesters sprinted across the field waving banners with the names of neighborhoods that were raised to make way for the team's stadium. We talk about the history of Chavez Ravine. And we talk to legendary music writer Ben Fong Torres, who's the subject of the new documentary, Like a Rolling Stone. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org forum. And to know what's coming up, find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the new book, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot with the three authors, who are all Stanford professors. We have Rob Reich, professor in political science and uh, also in philosophy. Mehran Sahami, professor in the School of Engineering, also associate chair for education in the computer science department. And Jeremy Weinstein, a professor of political science and a former senior official in the Obama administration. I wanted to uh, toss to you, uh, Jeremy, a comment from listener Aaron. 
It's confusing to me that these tech companies are held to such a high standard. We expect them to put people's well-being over profit, but they are a business. The healthcare system has been putting profit over people's lives and health for many years. But we don't see this sort of bipartisan congressional outrage over that. I am a millennial. I use social media sparingly. I'd like to think of myself as progressively minded, but I have a hard time understanding why we feel the need to legislate tech companies' moral standards. What do you think, Jeremy? It's a great question and something that I think all of us need to grapple with in a moment where Facebook itself is getting an unusual degree of attention. You know, the way we tackle this issue in the book is to say we shouldn't actually expect anything different from companies that are organized to raise capital from shareholders and to produce for the bottom line. Companies may have values. They may, as we see with the B Corp movement and and notions of stakeholder capitalism, choose to think about the environment or choose to think about social well-being, but not all companies do that. And in fact, most don't. Um, But the reality of, of the moment that we're in with tech is that we need to get our heads around the value trade-offs that are being made in the design of technologies, the end-to-end encrypted platform that puts its its sort of finger on the scale for privacy over safety. The, the focus on free speech that we see in some of the platforms, even at the cost of the health of our democracy. And, and the reason that as a millennial or as anyone in society that you need to care about an unregulated private sector is that these social effects of, of, of the private sector and of our individual choices to use technology are what economists call externalities. We see this when we think about decisions that that companies make to pollute a river or to pollute the air. When you see societal harms that are the result of the decisions of individuals in the market or of profit-making firms, but there are social consequences that we care about and are concerned about, that's when we think about an appropriate role for regulation. And the conversation that we need to have in the United States that's also being had about around the world is how much do we value these things that have been put at risk? The health and quality of democratic deliberation in our democracy, um, protections for privacy, the ability of our society to deliver safety for individuals, the well-being of individuals in a moment in which AI is displacing uh, work as we previously understood it. These are all social consequences of our individual choices. And that's exactly the moment at which we need conversations democratically and in our political institutions about whether we want to mitigate those harms. I also think it's it's so interesting, like if a startup began like fighting fires and then like pushed out a bunch of ways, you know, cut, pushed out a bunch of ways that were, uh, fires were fought with public dollars and then decided they weren't going to fight some fires. People would be like, hey, what's going on? This is like a, a public service that that's provided. And I think that people kind of forget in a lot of these uh, tech debates that these companies can't really escape these social effects as, as you describe them. And so because when they go into a realm and they take it over, they take on some of the responsibilities like, you know, policing the speech environment of so many different people because they make money by being that speech environment. And so at least to me, they if it's a bit of a you break it, you buy it situation. Um, Alexis, this is. Oh, yeah. Sorry, go, go ahead. This is Rob here. I just want to hop in on that because the the spirit of that thought is it seems to us exactly right. And and you know the, the kind of strange, you know, principled ignorance of history that sometimes emanates from Silicon Valley would have us believe that you know regulation and deciding what the values of a company should be from Washington D.C. or from citizens is somehow inappropriate. But if you just think historically, like if you woke up this morning 
and you had a bunch of, of milk. Um, well, did you get sick from the milk or not? There's a profit motive for people who are producing and distributing milk, but we have sensible, you know, common sense regulation that ensures the milk is going to be safe and in fact does impose a high standard of safety on our drinking of milk. The same with the clothes we're wearing today, which, which aren't going to cause a rash on our bodies. Um, these are kinds of things that we just assume are part of the broader landscape that we haven't had yet in technology and that we think we are now on the brink of bringing into being. And that's why this broader conversation is so important. There's nothing inappropriate about Washington, D.C. or citizens trying to impose guardrails and to help shape the values that are internal to companies. That's just part and parcel of what democracies have always done with the innovators who bring new products to market. Yeah. Let's bring in May from San Francisco. Um, hi, my husband works at a high level in a tech company, and um, I think in a lot of ways he would welcome there being people who actually understand science uh, or and the technology that he's working with um, because, for, for two reasons. One, um, sometimes the physical tech and the code and everything else uh, relies on things that could get arbitrarily taken out by a law that by people who don't understand what's going on. Or you're working in nanometers and someone comes and imposes a law in millimeters <laughs> and um, you suddenly can't include like, you know, some part of your hardware. Or the second part is that um, a lot of, you know, that the privacy is really important to say a company like Apple. Um, and if you do an arbitrary law that uh, says, okay, you have to, and no, I'm actually, I'm not going to say, but <laughs> you do an arbitrary law that threatens privacy and the way that Apple, say, does privacy, that would destroy Apple's commitment to their um, uh, to their users um, for privacy. But the, the lawmakers may not be aware. And if they had somebody who was, um, you know, actually understood the science behind it and understood what they were dealing with, maybe that wouldn't happen. Miran Sahami, um, thank you for that comment. It does seem like developing this capacity both to understand and regulate technology companies is kind of one of the key capacities for a state in the 21st century, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I think one of the things, if there's young people listening or thinking about career choices, is to think about being civic-minded in the sense of taking technology skills to Washington, D.C., to your local governments to be able to help them make better decisions. Actually, we've seen in you know, the work that we've done many examples of policy legislation that doesn't actually seem to make sense. There's really a push to try to take some action, and sometimes that desire to want to take some action isn't necessarily always well informed and it really needs that uh, that notion of what is the technology capable of doing and also importantly what it's not capable of doing but I think the place that we get to is you know is as the caller alluded to around Apple and privacy why should the choice for you know millions or billions of people's notion of privacy be determined by a small number of people at a private company there really needs to be a discussion around what's the value trade-off of having privacy on your phone versus, for example, the fact that some nefarious players might use that same privacy to traffic human beings or to organize terrorist plots. And so then we get into stark relief what some of the value trade-offs really are and why it requires thinking about making those decisions collectively rather than just by a small number of executives. 
Well, and Mehran, we haven't talked about this sort of in the context of geopolitics around the world, but one reason why Apple and why many people have been willing to go with Apple's privacy stance is because of eh, different countries around the world have different views on privacy. And if you want to sort of take a, a, a pretty heavy-duty version of privacy with you all around the world, you can buy an Apple phone. So how do we adjudicate that kind of um, dispute? Because we're not just doing it here, of course. We need to do it in every democratically elected government around the world and also many governments that are not democratically elected. Well, I, th I think point number one, Alexis, is to recognize that there are values being traded off and to come to terms with the fact that we feel uncomfortable about the degree to which those values are being traded off behind closed doors in private companies that aren't taking the public interest into account. This question about Apple and kind of end-to-end -end encrypted messaging was one of the major issues on the table when I was serving the Obama administration, when we were dealing with the threat of, of terrorist attacks in the United States and the ability to access the kind of information that was on people's phones encrypted on people's phones was one important interest that was represented in the public debate against the interest that you just described, which is a privacy first interest motivated both by the privacy needs and desires of people in the United States, but also concerns about whether the ability to open up phones and access information would be misused by authoritarian governments around the world to repress dissidents. There's no single right answer to that question, right? And, and the technology that we have in our society for refereeing these value trade-offs is our democracy, right? So it's not up to Apple to make that decision. Apple is one important stakeholder in the conversation, but we need to bring those, those, those value trade-off debates outside of the boardroom and into our democratic institutions and to arrive at the best possible outcome that balances these concerns. And you can imagine at a moment where people are very concerned, you know, a number of years ago about domestic terrorist attacks, um, there might be a desire to really facilitate the ability of the state to access information that it needs to prevent terrorism in the United States. But as that threat wanes, you could imagine that the, the regulatory framework adjusting to people's preferences. We got to make these trade-offs explicit. Yeah. Just to stay with you for a second here, the tech industry has been embattled for the last, let's call it decade, maybe a little bit less than that. But our own, but our democracy and our democratic decision-making processes has been like equally embattled. I mean, one problem I see with the approach that you all are suggesting is that our actual democratic mechanisms are slanted in particular in extremely conservative ways because of the nature of the Senate and other things that many of our listeners call uh, up and, and talk about in other um, uh, other shows. So does does fixing what you would like to fix with the technology industry also require fixing some of these democratic uh, institutions? So, so we think that this is one of the great existential challenges for democracy in the 21st century, which is re-energizing these institutions to govern a world that's being transformed by technology. And the good news is that we see, you know, and we saw in display in Washington this week, both from Republicans and Democrats, increasing clarity of purpose, but also depth of understanding about the problems. Now, you referenced the fact that democratic institutions themselves can be conservative. Um, we see that actually as a virtue of democratic institutions, right? A virtue of democratic institutions is that they're best at 
refereeing these value trade-offs in ways that create guardrails to avoid the worst case outcomes. And we're now at a moment where some of those worst case outcomes, the violation of people's privacy, uh, you know, to an extreme level without their understanding or awareness, the algorithmic amplification of hate speech and toxic misinformation on the platforms, these harms are now broadly understood. And so democracy operates best when one can generate consensus on those shared harms and provide the minimal guardrails that are required to, to balance our societal interests against the desire to have a private sector that's innovative and forward-leaning. That's the moment we're in. And I think we see the green shoots at the present moment of just what's possible as Washington wakes up. Let's bring in listener Peter from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Yes, hi. Uh, I think a little history is important as to how did this get to where it is. And one of the things I haven't heard at all is the government exemption on accountability, which is placed on every other, for example, publisher. Section 230 of the, I believe it's the Communications Decency Act of 1995 or 6. And uh, I don't know any other, as an example, Twitter. How does the president get to send 60 or 80 million messages into people's homes or hands or pockets without that being considered a publication. There's no other newspaper or publication that has that kind of circulation and certainly not with that kind of frequency. And yet Section 230, which they lobbied to get passed, gives them a massive, uh, basically complete immunity from accountability for this and 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 accountability that every other publisher is obligated to meet. I wrote a letter to the editor of a small local newspaper in San Francisco some years back, and the editor needed time to fact check. I said, what do you need fact checking? You know me, you've published me before, and uh, I'm signing it. It's a letter. He said, nope, anything that appears in my paper, I have to fact check. And I respected that a great deal. There's no such fact checking on Facebook or on Twitter or any other accountability for them for what they have done. Yeah. Peter, that's a great question. Go ahead. Yeah, this is Rob here. So it's a fantastic question. And I just have a, a, you know, a quick response on it, because I think it points to what was purposely put in place back in the 1990s by then President Clinton and Vice President Al Gore, what they called a regulatory oasis around big tech or Silicon Valley. The idea was to win the race to create the information superhighway and and what the caller referenced, um, Section 230 of the 1996 um, uh, Act, it, it, you know, put in place um, this exemption from liability for tech companies where there's user generated content. Now, um, in our in our book and in our in our own research, we don't think that we should wholly do away with Section 230 because what the, the relevant point here is you know, calling for fact checking of all content and what an editor does at a newspaper. Well, there are 300 hours of video uploaded to YouTube every single minute of the day. There are literally billions of pieces of content posted on on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, There's no such thing as human editorial judgment of that volume of content that's possible. So there has to be some combination of automated review along with human review. But do we need to exempt the companies entirely from any liability? That's the relevant question. 
And in the book, we tell some, we, we, we give some arguments about how to make some just commonsensical reforms to our legal infrastructure that include things like independent algorithmic auditing and introducing new ways of holding platforms to account for their own content moderation policies that we think would make important steps forward. Yeah. Um, Ernie would just, uh, listener Ernie would just like us to acknowledge that the negative impact of profit seeking over the health of democracy extends beyond social media to the larger realm of media, including the sensational attention seeking and polarizing coverage of public issues by mainstream news media. And I do think we need to take uh, we need to take our own medicine when we uh, in in the media. It's easy to take shots at the technology industry. Um, Jeremy, I wanted to give you one uh, final chance to sum up the book, which is, you know, kind of what are your sort of three steps uh, for rebooting the technology industry, you know, here in our last minute? So it begins from, from, from recognizing that there's not going to be one silver bullet regulatory solution that addresses the really diverse set of challenges generated by big tech that we've described. But if you orient yourself towards not just the problems of today, but the problems of tomorrow, we really need three things. Number one, we need a systematic effort to cultivate an ethic of responsibility among technologists. We see that ethic of responsibility among doctors, among lawyers. We see it increasingly in the world of the life sciences and biology, uh, bioengineering. We need to have that same ethic of responsibility in tech. The second ingredient is we need to check the concentrated power that exists in a very small number of companies. And some of that is going to be a function of antitrust action, but some of that is going to be a function of people organizing from below. And the final piece is a government that's capable of governing a technological future. That means technical expertise and know-how serving the public interest in Washington. Thank you. We've been talking about the new book, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot with the three authors who are all Stanford University professors, Jeremy Weinstein, Rob Reich, and Mehran Sahami. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with host Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How?! You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison 
in California? Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.